0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You are listening to The Big Cruise Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Big Cruise Podcast. I'm your host this week, Chris Frame, unfortunately Barry is unable to join us this week. He's recently taken up a new job that requires him to go up into the Australian Outback and as such not available for this week's podcast. Uh, Actually, we did record a podcast for this week, but a few technical difficulties meant that by the time he had to travel, we weren't able to get it uploaded. So sorry for the delay in getting this week's podcast up. Now, I wanted to start off by thanking everybody who has reached out to say that they voted for us in the Australian Podcast Awards. Those votes do close on the 28th of November, so if you are interested in supporting the podcast and giving us an opportunity to potentially pick up an award, you can go to australianpodcastawards.com.au forward slash vote and search for The Big Cruise Podcast. uh, Put in your details and of course, remember to check the email that will be sent out from uh, the Australian Podcast Awards to confirm your votes. It's their way of making sure that uh, people don't uh, vote a thousand times for themselves. Uh, and uh, and just click on that um, to make sure that they've registered your vote. But we're very grateful to everybody who has let us know uh, that you have voted, and also thank you to the Cruise Lines and the Cruise Media who have sent out information about uh, the Big Cruise Podcast to their databases. So we really appreciate uh, all the support we've been getting uh, throughout the last few months. Now, this week we'll be just looking at some maritime history listener questions because um, I am not even going to attempt to do the news by myself without Barry's help. Um, Of course, we'll be back next week with a full lineup of news. It'll probably be quite a big uh, episode because we'll touch on some of the things that we unfortunately missed out on this week. So we've got three listener questions this week that have come in over the last few weeks. You can, of course, submit your own listener question on the website. The first listener question comes from Claire. She's from Auckland, and she says, were liners doing line voyages in ports other than those on the North Atlantic? I know that Titanic and those ships are very famous, but what about ships operating to other parts of the world? So thanks so much, Claire. Yes, the answer is there were ships doing line voyages to all parts of the world. Uh, In fact, line voyages you can kind of think of like modern-day aeroplane route maps. So if you think about when you board a flight, particularly an international flight, quite often there's the the airplane magazine, the airline magazine, and you open it up in the back, there's usually a fold-out page that shows all the different places that they go to with lines on a map showing all the connections. Line voyages were a bit like that. So shipping lines used to operate to all parts of the world. Now there were certain areas, such as the North Atlantic, that had some of the most prestigious ships, some of the biggest ships, Um, and some of the most famous shipping lines. And the reason primarily why this was is because there was so much money and wealth on that particular service. There was a lot of first-class passengers who could transit between uh, Europe and America and vice versa for business. There was also a huge amount of people transiting for immigration between Europe and America, which meant that third-class or steerage was very profitable. And there was a heap of cargo that was being transferred ported across the North Atlantic as well, so you often found the biggest ships and in many cases the most luxurious ships on that North Atlantic run. Uh, but there were plenty of other line voyages around the world, so P&O for example, very famous for line voyages from the United Kingdom into the Mediterranean, through, eventually through the uh, Suez Canal onwards to India, Australia and Asia as well as um, you know, ports throughout the, the various different locations that they were travelling to get to these final destinations. You also had the Orient Line, which did line voyages to Australia uh, and, uh, and also used to do sort of um, feeder services with other lines across to New Zealand. There was the Union Castle Line, for example, which used to do line voyages to and from South Africa, primarily from the United Kingdom, but also into Europe. Uh, and there were uh, plenty of other examples around the world. Um, many different shipping companies had areas that they were best known for, So, say, for example, on the North Atlantic, Cunard, White Star Line, the best-known British shipping companies um, doing that service, but you might not know that White Star Line, for example, also used to operate to Australia, and in fact, after World War II, Cunard used to operate White Star Line's old um, Georgic to Australia um, as part of the Cunard White Star service. You had many other shipping lines, such as the French Line, um, which, whilst most famous for the North Atlantic, would also do... um, as sort of secondary services to different ports around the world, connecting the various different um, regions that were under French control, and many other shipping lines as well. So to cut a long story short, yes, line voyages were very uh, far-fetching. They were all over the world, and it was not just li- uh, linked with the North Atlantic. So thanks so much, Claire, for that question. second question comes from Rob. Uh, Rob didn't say where he's from, but... Uh, He has asked here, and it's quite an apt question given that I'm giving a talk on the subject this week at one of the maritime museums here in Australia. Uh, Rob says, when the Titanic sank, if she had hit the iceberg head-on, would she have survived? And then made another comment here, I know that the gash on the side was quite long, perhaps if they hadn't turned to starboard. So, Rob, thanks so much. Um, Firstly, weirdly enough, the Titanic actually made a manoeuvre, which today we would call um, a port manoeuvre, hard to port. But in the time of Titanic, they actually called it hard to starboard. Now this is because of the way that the tiller, or the rudder, was connected up with the wheel. And it dates back to the way that the old um, sailing ships used to be um, connected using ropes, uh, which meant that a turn to starboard on the wheel would actually turn the ship to port in the sea. Uh, Titanic was still operating under that model, and so when the uh, officer, um, First Officer Murdoch called out hard to starboard, he actually intended for the ship's bow to turn in the port direction or left direction, um, which is why the ships uh, made contact with the iceberg on the starboard side. So these days, if you called hard to starboard, you'd expect it to turn starboard and probably would have hit on the port side. Uh, so just getting that little little bit of information out the way is very confusing. Of course, these days they've simplified it. If you want to turn port, you say hard to port. If you want to turn starboard, you say hard to starboard. It's much more simple for everybody to understand. Um, and, of course, the, the way that they connect um, uh, the rudder to or, or the pods to the bridge is much, much different to what it was in the olden days. Now, um, had she hit the berg head-on, would she have survived? There is a good chance that she may well have had not a much longer um, period before she sunk, uh, she may well have actually indeed survived. We, we will never know, of course, because y- you know you can't go back and change history, but Titanic had watertight compartments, which divided the ship's interior up into different um, areas, uh, each one of which could be flooded, and the theory was that with a certain number of these compartments flooded, the ship should still be able to stay afloat. The problem for Titanic was that as she tried to avoid, as they tried to avoid the iceberg, they actually opened up her broadside um, to the berg, which made a sort of scraping pattern along the side of the ship. They kind of liken it to Morse code: so a hole here, a gash, little gash there, a hole here, a little gash there. Um, it's not that long, um, continuous slice like it's quite often been described. It's much more um, considered these days that it most, most likely was a series of of gashes along the hull, but nonetheless, it was enough, across enough compartments to give the ship a a fatal outcome, basically. She could never have survived that amount of damage. Had she hit the berg head-on, there is an argument that, of course, the front of the ship would have been terribly damaged, it would have crashed in the forward compartments, but most likely would have been um, able to be uh, absorbed by one of the main watertight compartments, close to the bow, and as a result of that, um, she wouldn't have had as many compartments opened to the water, and thus wouldn't have sunk. Now, of course, there's arguments on both sides of that, as to whether or not that would have happened, what other damage might have happened to the ship, um, would she have run up onto the berg, um, would that have caused further damage, there's all sorts of nuance to the answer to this question, but uh, it's generally believed that if you had your time again, you would most likely... Um, have taken that damage head-on, and, and probably would have had a more positive outcome. Now, of course, in the dead of night, ship's sailing along, an iceberg's being sighted. She's, you know, brand new. You don't know exactly, um, you know, all of all of the details that were relayed at the time. You would try, I suppose, the most natural thing to do would be to try and avoid the iceberg. Um, it would have been very hard to to justify just sailing it into the berg when you thought you might have a chance of getting around it. So it's a hypothetical, you know, exercise. There's no way of knowing exactly what would have happened and of course you can't really fault those who were there for trying to avoid the damage in the first place. Because of course, you know, you've got to remember that there were people birthed, living, sleeping in that forward part of the ship which had it hit the berg head on would most certainly have been um killed or or very badly injured. So, um I think at the time when you saw the iceberg you would have um, most likely, tried your very hardest to avoid it. So it's probably a, a bit of a pointless exercise, but yes, it's definitely something you'll read. You'll definitely hear lots of things. There's plenty of YouTube videos about it. Um, if the ship had hit the berg head on, she wouldn't have sunk. And there is some, some, I, I guess, uh, technical um, evidence that that suggests that that may well have been the case. The third question um, that we've got here is from Peter. Uh, Peter is from. South Africa. He didn't say where in South Africa, just from South Africa, so hello, Peter. Um, and he has another question also uh, about the North Atlantic uh, passenger ships. His question was, uh, well, is, I, I sailed on board the QE2 back in the 1970s and noticed that she was a very fast ship. In fact, Chris, I believe it was the fastest ship in service at the time. I wanted to find out how she would have compared with ships like the Lusitania or the Titanic. I'm assuming that you mean in terms of speed, Peter. Uh, QE2 was a very fast ship, and in fact, she was faster than most of the record breakers that held the Blue Riband. Um, QE2 was not faster than the final Blue Riband holder, that was, of course, the SS United States, which captured the speed record in the 1950s and held on to it um, up, up to her retirement in the 1960s, and, of course, still holds the record uh, for the fastest westbound crossing all the way up to this day uh QE2 would have been able to outrun Lusitania she would have been able to outrun Titanic quite easily um and in fact would have been able to hold her own in a um in a series of crossings with the original queens Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary um and um was a very fast ship so now QE2 could achieve a, a top speed of um well she managed 34 knots in sea trials She had a a maximum cruising speed of 32.5 knots. She had a service speed of 28.5 knots. Uh, And so she was uh, considerably faster than than many of the ships that were around, uh, not only at the time, but also back in history. Of course, you've got to remember that the older ships were sort of progressively getting better. So, of course, Queen Mary was faster than Lusitania. Lusitania was faster than Campania. Campania was faster than Britannia. So they, they did progress over time. Uh, and Kiwi 2 came along at a, at a period where they still needed to maintain that that five-day crossing to make the North Atlantic crossings viable, but at the same time um, didn't have to cruise at full speed all the time because she also did uh, that pleasure voyage service. Now an interesting little side note about a ship like Kiwi 2, something that's also correct about the Queen Mary 2, which is also a very fast ship that's in service today, is that because of their speed, they can actually take in more ports because they can go full speed at night, get from port to port really quickly, and you can be in multiple locations during during a voyage that some other ships can't get to quite as many because they're a little bit slower. Now, if you take a step back from that, it's really quite funny to look at the cruise ships because um, many of the modern day cruise ships now have a top speed of around about the 24 knot mark. The Atlantic liners, the premier fast Atlantic liners were sort of winning speed records at 24 knots about in in sort of the 1880s. Um, So you can see that uh, obviously the North Atlantic, it was very important to be very fast. Uh, Other ships such as Canberra and Oriana, which used to operate from the UK to Australia, they were extremely fast as well, uh, trying to get that Australian voyage down to um, under two weeks. Uh, But these days, of course, cruise ships aren't designed to be fast and that's not done on purpose. They don't need to be they can go from port to port at a leisurely pace, give you a pleasurable uh, holiday, and they don't really need to be bracing around the place. They're not designed to do those fast line voyages. So they're built for different purposes, and so whilst it's fun to kind of compare them, there really is no comparison because they're not designed for the same thing. So thanks so much, uh, Peter, for your question. Thank you to everybody uh, who, who has sent in questions over the, the course of the year. Please do send some more if you've got any maritime history or cruising questions you'd like to have answered, we'd be more than happy to answer them. So that's it for this week's show. I am sorry we couldn't bring you the cruise news as usual, but as I say, when Baz is back from uh, the Australian Outback, we will uh, look at uh, cruise news again and bring you another podcast with all of the stuff that you are used to. Um, Once again, thank you so much to everybody who has supported us through our uh, Australian Podcast Awards. If you do want to uh, give us your support just before the uh, the voting closes uh, on the 28th of November, you can go to australianpodcastawards.com.au and put in your nomination there for the Big Cruise podcast. Thanks once again, and until next time, we hope to see you on board.
0: That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time, bon voyage. Hold up.